Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us today on Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs and where we push the limits of our understanding. Uh, we are your hosts, Joe Landry and Lori Olford, and in this episode, we're going to talk about something that I would venture to say is on a lot of people's minds, uh, at least if you're religious, and that is the end times with its uh, apocalypse, its messiahs, its raptures, its tribulations, its antichrists. It's marks of the beast. It's white throne judgments. Um, you know, according to the book End Time Visions by Richard Abens, uh, since the 1990s, no fewer than 59% of Americans believe that doomsday is imminent, meaning that they don't think it's decades or years away, but it's like any time now. Um, so a little bit of an intense subject, huh, Lori? Oh, yeah, for sure. But let's face it, uh, we've been immersed in all of that for our entire uh, evangelical, evangelical Christian lives. Uh, this is something that preachers go into constantly. I remember hearing about the end times and the second coming of Jesus in probably a good 90% of all sermons. Well, I don't know. Okay, well, maybe just 80%, but a good yeah, deal it, anyway. There's definitely a lot at a time. Uh, even if yeah. that wasn't the keynote of the sermon, it was almost always referenced in some way. Uh, the point was always made that Jesus is returning soon, and you better look out. You better be ready, and you better have found salvation or your toast. Uh, Jesus, mm-hmm. I'm going to get you. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> not true. No, Jesus is trying to save you. Uh, the devil is coming to get you, <laughs> but you better find Jesus before the devil does get you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the whole message of salvation through Christianity is uh, centered on this idea of the end of the world, the end of mortal life and the perpetuation of the soul beyond death, raising the question of where will you be for all eternity after, the, after this world and this life have passed away. Um, and that is why the idea of a judgment day pervades religious thinking all over the world, for uh, it is in this moment where it is believed that everyone will be held into uh, account for the lives that they lived and be either found worthy of eternal bliss in a place like heaven, paradise, Bahala, Yana, Shaw, or the Bartle Plain. Mm-hmm. Or else you'll be condemned to eternal damnation in a place like hell, Hades, Purgatory, Kerr, Sheol, or even outer darkness. Yeah, this, this concept really goes to the foundation of the human psyche, uh, that we answer mm-hmm. for any immorality in our lives to a higher power. And that comes when our lives end. And it has been with us really since the dawn of time. Uh, But it actually goes beyond the individual's own life to integrate the fate of the entire world along with the fate of the soul. As not only will one's body die, but the entire world in which we exist will be eradicated or destroyed. Uh, We get this from Revelation 21.1, where supposedly John the Evangelist uh, sees a new heaven and a new earth. uh, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is also echoed in the Muslim Quran in Surah 27 with the observance of the sun rising in the west, uh, which will tell that the beast of the earth will arrive to end the world. Uh, And in Hinduism, the Bhagavata Purana uh, tells of when Vishnu will dissolve and regenerate the universe. In Judaism, there is a messianic age, which is to be a time of peace, justice, prosperity, and good health. And this is what many Christian denominations would call the millennium or the millennial reign of Jesus, the Messiah. Yeah, so there seems to be a universal belief in an apocalypse that will, at some point, will bring everything to an end. And that a judgment day will follow where everybody will face our creator to be deemed worthy and acceptable by the kind of people we are, which is conditional to the belief system uh, that a person follows. In other words, everyone has a different concept of how they uh, be judged by God, so has to get into heaven. Uh, Some even believe that in the last judgment or the white throne judgment, that our lives will be displayed before all, much like a movie, and, and everything about it, including all of our dirty secrets, will be examined and judged. Right. The, the scenarios for Judgment Day are as manifold as are the religions of the world. Uh, now, we've discussed many times that all the religions and mythologies that have been incorporated into our cultures uh, may have actually come from our distant ancestors encountering alien beings 
and relaying those stories through oral tradition to eventually become written canon. Could it be that our eschatology, which is the study of religious doctrines about the end of time and the last judgment, uh, have also come from uh, those same ancestors who, as primitive people, had interacted with the ones that they called the gods? Right. And, and, And if they came to believe that the gods, the Anunnaki, the beings from another world, were supposed to return, perhaps by being told by the aliens or just coming to that assumption on their own, then people may very well have concluded that they may be in trouble or for doing something that was unfavorable to the gods, hence a day of reckoning that is due to come. Uh, Consider in how Christianity, Jesus Christ, has said that he will return from heaven along with his angels and saints, and he will defeat Satan and separate the shaft from the wheat, uh, as found in Matthew 3.12. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4.16-17, It says that Jesus will descend from above and take his followers up, and they will meet him in the sky. Ah, yes, the rapture. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about that. Uh, Many of us have heard about it, but strangely, this passage from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians is the the only place where there is really such a a meaningful reference. Uh, Of course, there are many scripture verses that talk about the second coming of Jesus and the judgment of all sinners. But uh, this idea of people being taken up into the sky and then disappearing uh, comes more from something called dispensationalism. Now, like we've said, there are many narratives about the end of the world. Some involve a a Messiah who comes or comes again and ushers in a new age. Others deal with a more cyclical uh, theme of things being regenerated um, and reincarnated. Uh, The former is more characteristic of the Abrahamic faiths, and in particular with the Second Coming, dispensationalism was popularized in the 19th century by theologians who believe that God reveals himself to humanity in different ways in different dispensations. Basically, they're just long periods of time, long ages. Um, And and an allusion to this is is found in Amos 3, uh, 7, where... It says the Lord will reveal his secrets through his servants and prophets in the right time. Also in Daniel 12, 8 through 10, uh, we have the vision of the man clothed in linen uh, above the waters uh, who said to Daniel, go your way as these words are sealed until the end of time or the time ordained. Yeah, this was to help rationalize the discontinuity that is found throughout the scriptures, as, as well as the history of the church, with God rectifying people in a unique way pertinent to certain periods of time. This has been pointed out by many pastors that God, as being divinely sovereign, chooses how to communicate his plan of redemption, and that his relationship with mankind was not the same under the old covenant as it is now under the new covenant. This is what is known as covenant theology, which puts us now under a different set of rules from those people who lived before Jesus' resurrection. Right. Of course, many Christians have heard the almost dialectical answer to why God was so much harsher, uh, so much more vindictive, and so seemingly cruel uh, with his chosen people in the Old Testament, uh, as opposed to how he is with us now. Um, That being because they were under the Old Covenant with the Law of Moses, and we're now under, not under that. We're under the new covenant as Jesus has redeemed us and sent the, the Holy Spirit to be present with us. So the idea of the rapture mostly came out of this newer dispensational theology with it supposedly marking the beginning uh, of a messianic age on earth. And that's been taught as being a mass exodus from the planet. Now, it, it has not always been taught that way. Um, many early Christians like Origen, and Rufinus uh, saw the rapture more of like a spiritual type of experience, not a physical one. Uh, But many, like uh, Augustine, uh, believe that it would also be a physical rapture, just like a spiritual rapture, and that this would happen just before the Last Judgment. And others then began to teach that the rapture will have all the righteous believers uh, being taken away up to heaven while things go completely to pot down here in (laughs) what is going to be a, said uh, to be a seven-year tribulation, which is to precede the actual return of Jesus to earth for the millennium. 
Uh, Howell Lindsay wrote a lot about this. Uh, he wrote a lot about the rapture in, in recent years with the, uh, the late great planet Earth and also his famous uh, novel series, uh, Left Behind. Things going completely to pot. <laughs> that yeah. sounds like how things are going right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, um, I mean, like you have the COVID pandemic, the violent civil uprisings, clashing political ideologies, deteriorating foreign relations, natural disasters, uh, you know, the whole the whole works. Right. Many do think we are in the apocalypse right now. Exactly. But let's face it, we've been hearing that our entire lives. Mm-hmm. And, and and those before us heard about that for their entire lives. Uh, we, we like to say that people have been talking about the end times since the very beginning of time. And of this uh, show isn't to go into all of the prophecies about the end times. There are about as many different versions and interpretations of that as there are a number of people alive today. Sure, right. If you show me a hundred different clergy, I'll show you a hundred different explanations about what is going to happen with the apocalypse and the last judgment. And and of course, they're they're always wrong with any predictions. And they keep going to Matthew twenty four thirty six and Mark thirteen thirty two with no one knows the hour or the day, uh, only the Father knows. Yet they keep trying to fix a date when it's going to happen. Mm. Yeah, I mean, how many times have those evangelists said that the Lord is certain to return in our lifetimes? Uh, quite a few have said that it's imminent and will happen anytime. Hal Lindsey used to say it would be before 1981. Lester Sumrall published a book back in the 80s titled or I Predict 2000, which came out a few years later after the other book, I Predict 1985. <laughs> so. After the Jehovah's Witnesses Watchtower Society was founded, they said Jesus would return in 1914. Um, many preachers were saying in 1990 that Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist and that the Battle of Armageddon was going to happen in the Persian Gulf War. Uh, Jack Van Impey and Grant Jeffrey uh, would get on television and say to, uh, uh, to be ready in 2003. Edgar Cayce said back in the 30s that the Earth's poles would drastically shift in 2001 and bring disaster. Quite frankly, I can't remember a time, Joe, when the end of the world wasn't supposed to be just around the corner. Right. Yeah, me either. Right. Uh, and it, it's always been like that. The, the early church certainly believed that Jesus would return in their lifetimes, as he told them as much, uh, that the, that in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he said that they would be around for the judgment of the Lord. Uh, they weren't. Uh, as far back as the 4th century A.D., uh, St. Martin of Tours proclaimed that there was no doubt that the Antichrist was already born. That's in the 4th century A.D. Um, there, there was a strong consensus during the time of the Crusades, uh, and the Crusades was a full millennium after Jesus' death. Uh, and there was a strong consensus at that time that the Second Coming was very imminent. Um, many figures of the Reformation, like uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther, all thought that you know, the popes like Alexander VI and Leo X were indeed the Antichrist. Uh, there are people today that still say that uh, about the papacy. So there are just a, a myriad of beliefs and predictions about the end times. I mean, you not only have the rapture and the tribulation, you have the millennium with denominations who say that they are premillennialist, uh, postmillennialist, uh, amillennialist. And not just dealing with the second coming of Jesus. Uh, I mean, Shiite Islam has the coming of the 12th Imam. Um, there was the 12th Baktun on the calendar of Mayans, uh, the Mayan calendar, which we all heard about that if, you know, about nine years ago, 10 or nine years ago, which was supposed to have, have brought the end of the world in 2012. It didn't. Um, there was Robert Menzies' Pyramid Inch. Um, there were the Greek, Roman, Egyptian, Nordic, Celtic and Hindu doomsday prophecies of sundry kinds, all telling stories about everything we all know it will end. And of course, we can't forget uh, Nostradamus and all of his now popularized uh, quatrains. What we're focusing on is uh, how this notion came about in the first place. Why do we think we're going to meet up with God, whether the Christian God, the Muslim God, or any God? Why are we destined to meet up with him or, or them to be judged? whether we are righteous and, and, and redeemable. That, we think, may be because our ancient ancestors 
were in contact with a highly advanced alien species who not only created or biochemically engineered our genome, um, the human species, Homo sapiens, but who also dwelt here on Earth with them. Uh, they would arrive and depart many times throughout the various eras of the past. So since they may have very well have come and gone uh, from the Earth way back then, surely our ancestors would think that after they left this time, they will return just as they have before. And this notion of their return may have been imbued upon the mythological traditions about the gods coming back to hold everyone accountable for what they did while they were absent. And that could cause some problems for us, as most religions say as much. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Yeah, there definitely could be some problems with that. Um, the return of the so-called gods is not necessarily a good thing. I mean, the flood story alone tells of them trying to wipe us out. I mean, look at Greek mythology, right? Those guys were, uh, it was pretty, uh, dist- those Greek gods are actually pretty destructive. Nothing good there. <laughs> nope. So let's go back to the rapture then. Um, to me, it sounds very much like an abduction, a mass abduction, um, bigger than anything to ever happen on Earth. If it indeed does come to pass, it will be the greatest event ever recorded. People are supposedly just going to be involved in their normal daily activities and then poof, they'll be taken away without giving any consent or having any knowledge immediately beforehand. And has something like this ever happened before? Was there a big misinterpretation of scriptures? Could this be the return of the Anunnaki? And perhaps to better understand this, we should look at what happened in our history long before the flood. So God gave the command for the sinning angels to be bound until their judgment after 70 generations. A generation in the Bible is anywhere from 30 to 100 years or more. So it's difficult to calculate when this so-called judgment day will be. But let's attempt to see where the numbers lead us anyway. Um, Beginning from year one, creation of Adam to Noah's time, if Noah was born in 1056 after creation, and we'll find all this in the Bible, and he entered the ark when he was, say, 600 years old, then he entered the ark in 1656 after creation, the same year Methuselah died. However, we have a conversation between God and the archangels before Noah entered the ark. According to Genesis 5.32 and 10.21, Noah was 500 years old when Japheth was born. Genesis 11.10 has Shem 100 years old, two years after the flood. Ham, his third son, was also on the ark and had a wife as well. In Genesis 6.18, Noah is instructed to build the ark with his three sons who have wives. So it may have taken him 50 to 70 years to build the ark because the sons were old enough to have wives. If we subtract 70 years, uh, it will put us at approximately 1586 after creation when Uriel, the angel Uriel, possibly told Noah to begin building the ark as according to the book of Enoch. Now, sometime within this instruction from God to Uriel to Noah, God mentioned the 70 generations until judgment. So if a generation is 100 years, then that will put Judgment Day around 4586 A.D. 70 times 100 is 7,000. So if we use a generation that has 70 years, then that puts the so-called Judgment Day in the year 2486 A.D. Now, if we use 35 years as a generation, then that puts Judgment about 36 A.D., just a few years after Christ's resurrection. Now, if we are looking to see if the Judgment Day will be in our time, then a generation in Noah's era would have to be 64 years. 
putting Judgment Day at approximately year 2066. So not that far off. So if we are going to going by the Jewish calendar, where they expect their Messiah to return by year 6000, which will be 2240 on the Gregorian calendar, then a generation will have to be 66 years. This will be placing Judgment Day around 2206 AD. However, knowing now that the patriarchs were most likely fictional characters uh, created as a comparison to the original Babylonian names, uh, we can assume that it would be futile to even use biblical dates. So let's look at the Sumerian kings list, which is obvious as to where the Genesis authors copy from. Uh, from the nine antediluvian kings, Alulim, which is Adam, reigned 28,800 years to Zeosudra, which is Noah, who reigned 36,000 years for a total of 241,200 years. Now, this goes back to about the true era of human creation per genetic evidence, roughly 250,000 years ago. And we have that Sumerian kings list listing those large amounts of years uh, in, the, uh, in the museum over in uh, Europe. So what would be a generation to a king who lived into the thousands? If the flood came at, say, 11,000 B.C., which was about 13,000 years ago, and around the time of the Neolithic uh, Revolution, and then God was warning Zeosudra based on a 100-year generation. This judgment day would have been around 4,000 B.C. If we up the generation to, say, about 1,000 years, then, then times 70, we're looking at 70,000 years into the future, which is 59,000 A.D., so this makes me very assured that the biblical timeline is off, and I mean way off. It may also be, be a made-up timeline just thrown in there for crying out loud. Uh, but think about it. Who, who's writing this account about the patriarchs anyway and what God is saying? Who's the scribe that's there writing this down? You know, was it Enoch slash Emendurana or who wrote this stuff down? Or was it stories that were passed down for many generations that eventually just down and you know mistranslated and misconstrued hmm. yeah well what you just talked about there makes me think of james usher the irish bishop who around 1650 calculated the date of creation to be october 23rd 4004 bc uh, he did this simply by adding up the ages of the patriarchs in, the, in genesis and, and with that uh, the flood would have taken place in 2348 bc this chronology was officially accepted as authoritative by the church until only about 60 years ago, even though these dates are preposterously out of sync with, with all other historical, uh, archaeological, and geological evidence. So that raises the question of which of these narratives do we believe? Which one is most credible, reliable, and accurate? And there's really no way to know. There's no way to verify any of these accounts to, to include the names or the numbers that are provided in these texts. And as you pointed out, they don't add up. And that, you know, that 11,000 B.C. date for the flood is actually a pretty conservative estimate. Creationists who, who follow the book of Genesis literally as a, uh, as a literal account, a literal, literal history, uh, as did James Usher, usually go with a young earth theory. Uh, and that puts it more like around 5,000 to 6,000 BC uh, for, for for the flood, or for the uh, yeah for the flood, um, and there's nothing historic or or, or prehistoric uh, that lines up with that at all. So even if an actual date for the apocalypse was to be given in these sources, you have to wonder why should why should anybody believe it? <laughs> the timelines are all unreliable and probably nothing more than fancy guesswork. Actual dates are never given in prophecies, by the way. They're known to be fulfilled after something happens, something before, not beforehand, but something after, something, you know, big, big event happens. And, um, and, and then even then, the circumstances are, are vague, uh, subjective, and, and oftentimes uh, seemingly co coincidental. And we see this all the time with Nostradamus, uh, Baba Vanga, and uh, Edgar Cayce. It's when there's a noteworthy occurrence, something big of some sort, uh, that people then pull out uh, what one of them wrote and then see the association uh, as a claim that it was predicted beforehand. Yeah, and, and the same is true with the Bible. And 
you know, like we illustrated, these prophecies are vague at best and most often just untrue. Take Ezekiel, was it 26, 7 to 18, where it says Nebuchadnezzar would utterly destroy the city of Tyre. But that's not what happened. It was Alexander the Great who conquered Tyre about 200 years later. Yeah, and in uh, chapter 29, verse 18, Ezekiel says that Nebuchadnezzar could not defeat the city. He contradicts mm-hmm. himself right in the same, uh, you know, the same literature. Uh, so while apologists will say that this is just splitting hairs, you know, uh, the city was taken eventually. Uh, so what difference does it make if it was uh, Nebuchadnezzar or Alexander the Great who did it after all? And it says also in chapter 26, uh, verse 3, um, Ezekiel says God will cause many nations to come against Tyre. So the prophecy was still fulfilled. And the problem is, is that th- this becomes an ad hoc explanation well after something had happened, not a clear vision into the future of what will happen within a certain time frame. The prediction was not that Tyre would one day fall within the span of 200 years. The prediction was that Nebuchadnezzar would do it, which turned out to be untrue. Also in verse 21, it has God saying that Tyre shall be no more, that it shall be sought after and shall never be found again. That didn't come out to be true. Uh, Tyre exists to this very day in Lebanon and has so since the Greco-Roman era. In fact, it thrived as a commercial and trade center throughout much of the Middle Ages. In antiquity, it was famous for its production of purple dye. So here's a pretty solid example of prophetic inaccuracy. Yeah, likewise. But uh, things get uh, really convoluted when you start dealing with signs and symbols of apocalyptic visions and trying to know what what means what. They are confusing, and there are multiple interpretations. I look at Daniel's vision of the king of the north and the king of the south and Michael and the prince of Persia. Most scholars think this is a reference to events going on back then. But we also hear that it's about modern-day Israel and modern-day Russia and the Antichrist. And, and I mean, what about Gog and Magog from Ezekiel and Revelation? Now, some say that refers to Russia, but there is no evidence at all that makes that link. And John's four horsemen of the apocalypse? Well, there are many versions of what evangelists like say are supposed to symbolize every everything from war and famine to capitalism and communism. And then there's the whole numerology and, and what it conveys, like the numbers 12, 10, seven, six, four, three, and three and a half, which are embedded into the vision literature to mean things like completion, perfection, God and the Trinity with 12, 10, seven, and three, also to represent mankind, the world, and imperfection with numbers like six, four, and three and a half, and to be combined to really highlight and emphasis important or emphasize important meanings like 777 and 666, 10 7s, 70, or 770s, or 10 10s times 10, 1,000, or 12 10s times 1,000, 144,000. And these numbers are, are all used to communicate and underscore specific ideas, spiritual and, and metaphysical ideas. Phew. That's I mean, a man, that, that's, a, that's a lot of numbers. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot to keep track of, isn't it? So, yeah. I mean, stuff like this, yeah, stuff like this will make your brain hurt if you try and wrap your mind around it. <laughs> but, um, well, let's go a little further <laughs> with the uh, the name of the Roman Emperor Nero. So, Nero Caesar, and he is Neron Quizar. That's N-E-R-O-N-Q-E-I-S-A-R. And by using something called Gematia, uh, uh, the numeric value of the letters uh, of that name adds up to 666, the number of man. Well, this is based on an article from October 2004 by Noam Elks, a professor of mathematics at Harvard University of Mathematics. Now, the whole theory behind uh, gematria is a, uh, a lot more elaborate than this, but in, in a little bit, I, I'm going to show how Nero was an important figure here. Yeah, then you have to remember you have the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, 9 through 24 with garments as white as snow and who had a fiery throne with wheels. Who is that? Is, is that supposed to be God? Is that El or Yahweh? Is, is that a personification of time, like father time? Could it be an ancient astronaut? It's ambiguous and unclear, right? Um, mm-hmm. The four beasts coming out of the sea, the eternal kingship of 
one like a son of man. These images were often impregnated with meaning that the people back then would have understood very well, and they may have had associations with some extraterrestrial events that had occurred sometime in, in distant past at some point. Uh, the images that are described evoke emotions of fear, uh, pride, hope, and joy, as well as representing some aspects of spirituality, such as divinity or the struggle between good and evil. They could also be a polemic about the political state of the world back at that time. Take the word Armageddon, uh, which would represent something important to the ancient thinkers. And it's actually a corruption of the Hebrew words Har Megiddo, which means the mound of Megiddo. The city of Megiddo, Megiddo sat on a hilltop that overlooked the Jezreel Valley, which was uh, of strategic significance, as it is a narrow corridor of territory that allows passage from the Fertile Crescent to the Via Maris and the King's Highway. You know, the Middle East was, was always considered to be a crossroads of the ancient world. Uh, all the trade, trader routes from Asia and Europe and Africa, you know, they passed through there. And the region of Palestine uh, is even more crucial, uh, as this is where uh, they all tie into one another. And, and Megiddo in the Jezreel Valley was of immense importance, uh, as this was like the bottleneck where most of all these routes went through. So without going through Megiddo back then, travelers would have had to go to other lands by crossing the Mediterranean Sea, which was more costly and, and a lot riskier, uh, or, or to go more to the east across the Arabian Desert, which was considered very treacherous and had very rough terrain, uh, very long distances with almost no water sources at all. So going through Megiddo was the optimal way. Therefore, it was a very desirable place to control for the purposes of revenue, material trade influx, and communications with other parts of the world. So, you know, back then, if you wanted to rule the lands of the Mediterranean and the Middle East, you needed to control Megiddo or Armageddon, as we like to call it. Um, thus, the Battle of Armageddon, with Jesus being victorious over the Antichrist, would be understood almost like a code for the ultimate battle of the world, the ultimate battle of the universe, the control of money, and the establishment of a prevailing order and peace. Yes, and uh, this was the case with a, a lot of that kind of literature. Uh, now, if a Christian believes the uh, teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24, at least in a literal way, then there's a problem. Uh, you alluded this, uh, to this earlier. Jesus said in verse 34, truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, he said this right after telling his disciples that the moon will not shine and the stars will fall from the sky. According to Jesus, the judgment should have already occurred a very long time ago. Now, he appears to know for certain that the generation at that time will not pass away, yet he does not know the exact day or hour. Um, he actually ended, it actually ended very badly for the disciples because they all died under the misery of the Roman Empire before that generation ended. Um, there was no mass abduction. There was no two people in the field where one was taken and one was left. Now, we, we can go on and on about this, um, but the, the only thing that we have coming at us in the future, uh, I, I believe, is an alien invasion of some kind. Now, the people of our ancient civilizations may already have had first contact. And if the scriptural writers are correct, then we are in for the fight of our lives. Um, that's because our alien gods didn't make us to share in their technological progress, at least not for, for most of us anyway. Yeah, I mean, they might reward a few humans who, you know, they've come to like and, and, and give them what would be the equivalent of a political favor or favors. but they seem to have created us to serve them and work for them. So their return means a return to that, to being enslaved by them just as we once were. Is the book of Revelation trying to tell us something about that? Are, are we naive and blinded as to what's on the horizon? Have we errantly um, formed our religious religions so as to incorrectly teach us? Uh, it could be that it is us who are the great harvest mentioned of in the Bible. Yeah, you, you bring up a, a good point, an interesting point, and, and that is, you know, where do we find the end of the world to be a good thing? 
uh, we don't, certainly not from rev, uh, religion. Um, the apocalypse, the end times, the battle of Armageddon, the, the last judgment. The, these are nightmarish images of, of hellscapes. Uh, who hasn't heard a preacher scare us with it? I mean, sure, we, we were told the, the good news that if we have salvation through Jesus, we'll survive and live through a messianic age or, or else go to heaven. Uh, but we also know that many people, uh, actually the vast majority of people, uh, are not going to be saved and are going to go into to damnation. Uh, and that's not a pretty thought. And the point that I'm making is that the return of anything, Jesus, Osiris, the Muzi, uh, Loki, Quetzalcoatl, uh, it's not a picnic. Uh, it's the cataclysmic end of an age and the beginning of an entirely new and altered one where many don't make it. Uh, when you look at it that way, there really is no good news to it. <laughs> Listen, uh, the way I see it unfolding is that the gods are extraterrestrial creators going to return. It's not a statement of if but a question of when. Um, and when that time comes, like you said, it's probably not going to be very pretty uh, for us humans, the human race, if, if we don't get our act together. Um, as we discussed in one of the last season's episodes, extraterrestrial law, the establishment of order, was given to our civilizations by the alien gods uh, in the way of commandments, so as to separate us from the animal species. And for humanity to evolve into um, the best civilization possible and eventually a utopian one. However, uh, we are still warring against each other, hating each other. We're still killing, we're still killing one another. We're assaulting each other, abusing and taking advantage of our fellow humans on a daily basis and attacking those who are put in charge to enforce these extraterrestrial laws. So indeed, it can be said that some of our creators do not want us to be a united humanity, but there are others who do. And for them, the human race is their prodigy, their legacy, much like how our children are to us. The Anunnaki that do not want us to progress know that we'll be a threat once we put aside our petty differences and advance ourselves for a more common cause. So consider that our laws were established long ago, as we see with the alien god Hutashamish and King Amurabi. Uh, we have adapted and changed them for every society that came thereafter. But when the lawgiver, Shamesh, El, Yahweh, Anu, or some other one returns, that, that will be the day of judgment. Did we uphold the law as we collectively, as the human race, were instructed? Just as a court judge makes a ruling on whether or not a person is guilty, so too will the supreme judges of the divine council do the same for our world. Judgment means punishment and even retribution. I don't really believe that this ordeal is going to individual level, but instead um, it will be on a mass level. Perhaps it will be nations that will be condemned or even possibly redeemed. And maybe each one will be judged as being moral or, or corrupt and all of its people will benefit or suffer the consequences. But that really is the core theme of prophecies, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, the tone of all of them, especially Jeremiah, Hosea, and Micah, their, their messages were that the people's immorality and wickedness would lead to their disruption um, by way of an enemy invasion, usually. Yeah. Um, Jesus could actually have been warning us in Matthew 24 about a future alien invasion. Now, even he was thinking that this was going to happen soon and in this era because he told his disciples that they will not see death until all these things uh, talking about happened. So that didn't come to be. However, life continued on and the words of Christ survived to this day, 2,000 years later. Now, whether or not Jesus actually quoted these words, really, it, it, it's up for debate. Um, but we can talk about that at another, at another time. For this topic, we'll focus on a few scriptures that I believe are in events that eventually will lead to a future war with an alien race. Now, Here's what uh, verse 29 through 31 says in Matthew 24. Um, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the son of man in the heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels 
with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, what's being talked about here? I believe it's a large spaceship entering our atmosphere, much like a scene out of the movie Independence Day by Roland Emmerich. Remember that one? Oh, yeah, those uh, those large ships that hovered in the sky above New York and L.A. and Washington, D.C., and they were like uh, just as large as the cities themselves. Right. And they came out of those fiery clouds and moved over the whole city, blocking out the sun. Imagine if if we were to actually witness that. It was scary just watching it on the big screen. It sent chills up my spine in right. the theater. Um, and what kind of things would happen to the Earth and us if there was such an alien invasion? Would there be geological, meteorological, and astronomical changes, especially with a planet like Nibiru getting closer to us? Um, I think very likely that it would. Tides, ocean currents, weather patterns, and plate tectonics that would all be affected now, you get the smaller ships may then deploy from the mothership and fly across the earth and abducting a selection of humans. Uh, consider this in uh, verse 40 of Matthew 24. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Now, it may be that these ships would be flown by angels who are really nothing more than alien pilots and who would collect a mass harvest of humans to take back to Nibiru, where they will worship God forever. Even the Apostle Paul, as we referenced earlier, said something that makes you think of this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 to 17, with, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now recall that the word transliterated as worship is avad, which means work in Hebrew. Now this may pose a problem for believers who think they'll be up there worshiping the Lord. It could actually be that they'll be up there working for the Lord, like slaves and servants. And this could very well be the case based on the Anubilish narrative of the ancient Babylonians, where you know uh, we were made to work based off of the uh, Sumerians, um, but we were made to work in the gold mines for the Anunnaki. But perhaps being taken up to Nibiru to do whatever work needs to be done will be better than remaining here on earth for what is to come. Um, maybe that's what Jesus' teachings were meant to be or do, is to get us onto good terms with the Anunnaki so that they might give us, you know, I don't know, preferential treatment when they do return. Um, the believers would be their followers and loyalists while the non-believers would be, well, the rebels, I guess, or AKA sinners. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what you're, what you're saying, it better to be working up on Nibiru than to be down, working down here. Uh, you know, <laughs> as, as bizarre as that sounds, it sort of falls in line with the tone of the prophetic yeah, visions of the end times. I mean, even John Milton wrote in a similar fashion in Paradise Lost that long is the way and hard that out of hell leads up to the light. And this may be what Judgment Day is really all about. And you have to wonder if the Anunnaki return every 3,600 years when Nibiru passes by. Uh, has humanity already experienced its Judgment Day, perhaps several times in our past? If, if that were to be so, then surely the stories would have been preserved in all of our cultural traditions. Maybe the reason why our religions tell us so vividly about the end of days is that the end of days has already happened. You know, more than once. Um, when when this may occur again is anyone's guess, just as it always has been. And there are um, many teachings out there about all of this being uh, cyclical, uh, which does seem sensible when you think about it. Uh, Nibiru's uh, orbit brings it back here again and again. So the prophecies tell of things that will happen, even if it's in a vague way, because these things have already have happened. Carl Jung would say that is uh, in the analytical psychological framework uh, that has become embedded within the collective memory of people in the way of mythology. So this notion of uh, a judgment day is sort of become interwoven into our unconscious minds. Yeah, and this is where I'll bring uh, uh, it up again about Emperor Nero, Emperor Nero, who, like I said earlier, has a name that equates with six six six. 
I think there's a good chance that the Antichrist in Revelation is nothing more than Emperor Nero. Uh, it would make sense for early Christians to think of him uh, and the great empire he represented as the as the beast. So by using gematria, um, they could talk about him negatively and critically in such a way as to be encrypted and secret. Also, another reason why Nero could be considered as the Antichrist is what is said about the tribulation. He waged a brutal persecution of the Jews and Christians and brought misery and destruction even in the city of Rome itself. It, it wouldn't be far-fetched to think that they saw all of this as the end of days. Uh, could it be that a seven-year period of persecution was mistranslated as a seven-year tribulation? I believe so, because you must take into account everything that was reportedly going on at that time, like the mark of the beast. Now, the Roman Empire was the beast, and when Nero formed a new coin with his image on it, well, that became known as the image of the beast. So no one could buy or sell in the marketplaces unless you use this new currency. So the Jews and Christians thought this was a form of worshiping the state and the emperor. Um, this, this name of the mark of the beast could also be a mistranslation from Greek in which mark is charigma, which means money or a note. So this adds up. Uh, it could very well be that the mark of the beast is actually nothing more than the money of the Roman Empire. And, you know, uh, this, uh, this is actually pretty well accepted. I mean, this is actually... Um, a there's actually a good consensus on this in the schools of eschatology um, about money being the mark of the beast. You know, in the third century AD, the emperors Decius and Diocletian instituted what's called the libellus, uh, and it was a certificate uh, that was required to be kept by Roman citizens to prove that they participated in these uh, kind of homage sacrifices that were required. Uh, it required to be given to the Caesars and the uh, the pagan pantheon. Uh, without it, you couldn't conduct any official business. Uh, and it was enacted uh, because they believed that they would help reform the empire. These uh, emperors at this time believed that uh, the Roman Empire and the state were in corruption and decline because they were falling out of line with the traditions of the Roman gods who were angry with them. The reform was to bring them back in line with the traditions of the Roman gods. Uh, therefore demanding that citizens participate in these homage sacrifices and then prove it. And without that, you were, uh, you were an apostate. You were not you know, doing your part to reform the empire. And, and we've even heard about that in, in modern times. I mean, how many times we've heard preachers saying things like uh, uh, there was a time when the credit cards uh, were said to be the mark of the beast. Your social security number was the mark of the beast. Any identification number was the mark of the beast. Even medical records can be construed as the mark of the beast. So, yeah. So, uh, well, with that, we are about out of time. So this concludes our show for today. Uh, wanna, we thank uh, all of our listeners who joined us, and we hope all of you enjoyed the topic. If any of you thought the whole subject of the end of the world was a little bit of a downer, um, we are sorry. <laughs> but uh, as we all know, we, we, we all heard from Carl Sagan, and Stephen Hawking, uh, you know, that fireball in the sky isn't going to be around forever. Am, am I right or am I right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, oh, yeah. Every anthropologist uh, or sorry, anthrophysicist will tell you that uh, that for nothing else, the uh, sun will one day not be there. Uh, it'll either die or a supernova and life on Earth will be no more. <laughs> exactly. That and, and something about similarity. <laughs> God love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I like to say this to our fellow earthlings out there. Uh, when that day comes, stay strong, uh, endure, and be united. This seven-year tribulation period may end up being a seven-year war with our alien invaders. The alien gods of the past will return, and they know that a humanity that is united is a force to be reckoned with. Uh, one thing to keep fresh in our minds is the famous Latin uh, adage, CV uh, Packham Parabellum. If you want peace, prepare for war. So, anyways, everyone, um, next week we're going to be talking about dragons. Uh, lots of people believe in them. Many more think they're really cool. But the question remains what are they or what were they? Were they actual living creatures like dinosaurs or monsters? Or were they alien technology like spaceships and powerful weapons? Yep, uh, we'll explore how different cultural legends and lore 
can tell us more about what they really were to be uh, have seen been seen in all parts of the world as uh, many of the legends say they were uh, should be pretty interesting so if you're joining if you're enjoying alien talk podcast uh, please give us a like on Facebook and follow us there and on Instagram and give us any of your comments. Let us know if you like what we're discussing or if you think uh, we need to change anything. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, we leave you with the comforting words from the Zoroastrian mantra. For every person, let there be good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Take care, everyone. So long, folks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>